So thanks everyone for joining us again for another edition of our uh, Path to Becoming a CFO interview series. Today, I'm super excited to introduce you to Ned Siegel, who is the CFO at Twitter. And before that, he was in you know finance leadership roles at Intuit and RPX and spent uh, a long time, about 17 years at Goldman Sachs before he moved into operating roles. So Ned, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tejan. Boy, I look at that picture and the collar and a jacket. I haven't worn either of those in some time. That's the Goldman Sachs picture, I'm sure, right? Well, even, you know, even at Twitter, it made sense to do that before we had this global pandemic. Now I can wear slippers and a t-shirt and, uh, and still spend time with you. Fantastic. No, it, it, it's uh, great to have you. And let's, let's jump right in. I want to start off by maybe uh, asking you about that, that big shift that you made. Right? You spent a long time in, uh, in investment banking, and uh, then you decided after 17 years, hey, I'm going to go uh, get into some operating roles, and you've been doing that for about seven, eight years now. What, what kind of uh, you know, drove you to make that uh, shift? Well, I always worked around technology companies while in finance at, at Goldman Sachs. I loved finance and I loved technology companies. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to spend time with technology companies at these critical moments when they were buying another company, when they were selling their company, when they were raising capital. And through doing that, what I realized was I'd really love to spend even spend more even time more with time those companies, companies and live with, I'm just getting a little bit of echo. I was able to hear myself for a minute. It sounds like we're okay now. Um, and I wanted the opportunity to live with those decisions and help execute on them beyond the transaction itself. I also realized that as much as I really loved my time at Goldman Sachs, I worked with great people. We had great clients. Uh, it was uh, invigorating every day and I developed lots of skills in doing it that I wasn't able to practice leadership as much in the roles that I had there as I really enjoyed even thinking back to childhood and student government or sports teams and the like. And I knew that if I moved to operating roles, I'd still be able to work in finance. I'd still be able to work around technology companies. I'd be able to um, execute and carry out those transactions and, and more, and I'd be able to practice leadership as well. Got it. And also the operating roles that, that you've chosen over the last seven, eight years, what stood out to me was just, it's a very diverse set of finance leadership roles, right? So it's patent risk and SMB software, and now this is consumer product, you know, at Twitter. And was that kind of a conscious choice that you made to kind of maybe challenge yourself? And, and, and uh, how do you think, how did you approach that diversity of uh, work that you've done? Well, the conscious choice was less about what the companies did and more about the opportunities that they created and how, as I learned more about uh, what skills I wanted to develop and where I thought I could best apply my skills, um, those opportunities seem to be the best ways to, to do that. So from the beginning, not having been a CFO before, RPX, which is a company that I worked with through their IPO as a banker, I knew the company really well. I knew the people really well. And I thought it was a really fascinating, fun business, basically trying to avoid litigation for technology companies by uh, getting them access to patents uh, at prices where there was transparency and so on. With a 15-person finance team, with a business that I knew really well already, I was well positioned to step into a role that was pretty new for me. So there was less new newness around the role. Uh, into it uh, really came out of me realizing that I loved being a CFO, but I wanted to do it at a bigger scale. And I realized that in order to do it at a bigger scale, that I had a lot to learn. And so I took a subordinated role at Intuit where I reported to the CFO as effectively a 
a divisional CFO. I got to learn from him, from the team. I got to learn how to lead indirectly as opposed to directly. When you're sharing a decision or encouraging others to make a decision and it's communicated by people other than yourself, it's a very different type of leadership than when you can pull the whole team together and share a decision just with them. And uh, Twitter ended up being a terrific way to apply those learnings about how to lead at scale in a fascinating company with an incredible founder leading the company with a great group of people. Um, and at a time when I thought that I'd be able to contribute to the, the challenges we had around us. Got it. And, and as you think about, you know, switch, as you did switch to different industries and domains, what was maybe easy or difficult for you, right? Like, was that a, you know, jarring change every time you went through it? And was that a steep learning curve? And what was that experience like? Because I'm sure a lot of people uh, try to think about that choice between, hey, I've built expertise in a particular area. Maybe I spend the next 10 years going deeper and deeper in that specific area and build on that expertise or you shift and then you go to different industries. How was that experience for you? Well, I imagine like you and many others on this call, I love a steep learning curve. I noticed that if I'm not being challenged and learning new things, now that could be about how to lead. It could be about finance. It could be about a specific company or the job requirements related to that specific company. But if I'm not challenged and learning new things, I notice that I'm really not at my best. I'm an intensely curious person and having something about which I can ask a lot of questions and really dig in allows me to really be excited and deliver my best. And so uh, Twitter has presented that opportunity in wonderful ways because I was a software banker when I was at Goldman Sachs. Uh, patents and QuickBooks have a lot less to do with what we do at Twitter today. And so I pull on the leadership skills I've developed. I pull on the pattern recognition that as finance professionals, we all have developed throughout our careers, but I'm applying it in a very different way. Thankfully, Jack's perspective is he wants to hire for potential as opposed to for the specific experience that somebody brings. And that's a philosophy that I share and that we have across the company as well. And that allowed me to bring some skills that were very transferable to what we do at Twitter, but didn't perfectly correlate to the, the role that I have today. The CFO who I replaced, who's a good friend of mine, Anthony, he had taken the company public as a banker before he came to the company. And I remember my first meeting with Jack, I said, I just wanna be clear, I'm not gonna know the company as well as Jack. I'm not gonna know the space as well as Jack. That's gonna be what I have to learn. There are a lot of other things that I think I have to offer, but I'm gonna have to come up to speed on this sector. The nice thing about that is often that that means that you're bringing a fresh perspective if you have pattern recognition from other experiences that you've had throughout your career. Got it. And so I'm going to ask you the question that I ask like every CFO I speak with about this, you know, because everybody comes with such a diverse background, right? And 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 usually it could be investment banking or it could be more of a uh, you know audit kind of uh, background. But but in terms of what people study, we've had. Uh, mechanical engineers. We have had people with operations research and, and economics and all kinds of uh, interesting backgrounds. People take a different path to get to that role. But when it comes to the two big paths of audit versus investment banking, what is your experience? Clearly, you came from that investment banking background, but that, which meant you didn't have a, a, you know, a set of skills and strengths. And, and that's something that maybe you have to surround yourself with with other folks. But how, how do you think about uh, in what situations and kinds of companies, one background versus the other, 
is, is more suitable? And what are some lessons learned from your perspective uh, on that front? Well, I don't think there's a specific formula to get to have a CFO job or whatever one's career aspirations might be. If we do things that we're passionate about, where our most profound traits present as strengths and not as weaknesses, if we work with people who we really like on a product or a company that we think is doing something important where we find value in it, and we believe other people will find value in it, you'll do well at your job, which will lead to great opportunities over time. And it may not take you in a straight path. I was a Spanish major at Georgetown. I thought I'd go start a business in Latin America. That didn't happen, but I continued to do things that I found really interesting. And because I was interested in them, I think I did better than if I had done jobs that I hadn't found interesting because I was trying to stay on a very specific path. Um, you, I, I mentioned earlier, you want to work in a job where your most profound traits present a strengths. I'm an intensely curious person. If I had a role that didn't satiate my curiosity, that'd probably be pretty unsatisfying for the people around me. I'd never stop asking questions and they'd be annoyed by them. Uh, and I'd probably feel the pressure of getting on people's nerves with all my questions. Now that may happen from one meeting to another uh, inside of Twitter every once in a while. Uh, but generally I'm in a role as many of us as finance people are where a curiosity is rewarded. And so I'd say it's really less about a specific path because in any job you have where you're, you're, it's different than the job you had before because it has more scope, uh, you're inevitably gonna have components of that role that you didn't do in your last job, you didn't have exposure to, you didn't have responsibility for. And so I wouldn't solve for checking all of the boxes. I'd solve for doing things that you're really good at where your most profound traits will present a strengths. This is fascinating to me because it almost seems like if you go listen to all of the CFO interviews I've done with super accomplished people like you, it almost seems like there is some secret code where everybody talks about curiosity as being the super important trait. So. Hopefully, you know, everybody who's listening will, will uh, take that away as, as, as uh, something that they can learn from, right? And, and Well, I, I think that's right, Tejo, but curiosity is one of those things that you can't teach. Um, it, it's innate. And part of it is because you're, you're, you're a curious person. Part of it is because you're working on something that you find interesting. And if you're just trying to check a box and get a specific role so you can get to the next one, but you're not working on something that you find interesting. You're not gonna present as a curious person. You're not gonna find yourself asking those questions. You're not gonna learn as much and you're less likely to end up being as qualified as you'd like to be for that next role. Got it. And then look, speaking of being qualified uh, for the role, we were just talking about this, uh, especially at Twitter, right? And uh, you know, Twitter is a company that is in the public eye like pretty much no other uh, company, right? And, and the executives at Twitter are also in the public eye. Like... I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so did, did you know what you were walking into? Like, talk a little bit about that that learning curve of, of uh, you know, uh, the onslaught that I'm sure all of the executives at Twitter must kind of experience on a regular basis. And I'm sure there is a lot of good that comes out of it and adulation and, and uh, the choices that you make, but I'm sure there's a lot of scrutiny and criticism. You know, it almost seems like at some point you can't do right, right? Like, you know, somebody's going to be disappointed no matter what you do at some point. And so was that kind of an environment, something that, that you were aware of walking into that role? And what's that learning and growth curve been like for you? 
Well, we're in a different spot today than we were if you go back five years or six years almost to when Jack came back to the company as CEO. And I joined about two years into that turnaround that he initiated. And the audience growth was not where it is today. It was in the single digits, just starting to approach the double digits. We had 27% DAU growth last quarter. Um, the we, revenue was not growing. And I think people had seen what Twitter's potential was through elections, through Arab Spring, through incredible experiences using Twitter as a companion to watching sports. But we hadn't realized uh, a, a lot of the potential that we've since realized. I was going to say full potential, but we certainly haven't realized our full potential yet. And uh, so I, I definitely didn't appreciate some of the complexities that would come with some of our success and frankly, making mistakes amidst success or in, in the public eye. And uh, that's been an interesting challenge for all of us uh, and something that as one of the people who has responsibility to speak on behalf of the company uh, that I am responsible and accountable for and has taken some adjustment for me. An example is we make policy decisions all of the time, which you'd all be thrilled to know aren't made by the CFO, but as somebody who speaks on behalf of the company, I feel accountable for them and I end up speaking to them. And so sometimes I feel like I'm, um, preparing for something completely different than an earnings call or a discussion with a journalist about our earnings with the scope of things that we sometimes have to be prepared to cover. But if you go back to the curiosity, it certainly satiates my curiosity when we have to think through and be prepared to speak to such a broad range of topics. Got it. And, and so also, as you look at now, you've been in operating roles for a good amount of time and, and, um, you know, I'm, I imagine you you are seeing the patterns of other people come up and, and take CFO roles around you, maybe people you've mentored and, and advised and things like that. What do you think are, are the patterns you see uh, in the people who ultimately make it to that CFO role and are become CFOs of impactful companies? And curiosity is a trait that you've talked about. But if you look at maybe patterns in your own career and, and other people that you've seen go into other impactful CFO roles. Are there other patterns that you generally notice, uh, you know, in, in the people who uh, end up there? Well, I notice a lot of people get a role as a CFO or a senior person in finance through brute force. They just work incredibly hard and they do all of the things that are asked of them and they're incredibly patient. And that is definitely a way to get there, but it's, even better served when it's complemented with somebody being principled and authentic. When you're principled as a finance person or another kind of leader, then you're predictable. People know what to expect from you. They know what's behind the questions and the decisions and the times when somebody else makes a decision, but you're challenging it. And they're able to make decisions on your behalf as opposed to needing to come to you for decisions over and over again. So I really encourage people to think about moving past the brute force and the hard work that many of us are capable of, but doesn't necessarily solve for leadership on a finance team in a durable way and being principled. And the second is to be authentic because if somebody tries somebody else's style of leadership, they may through brute force be able to present that way for some period of time, but it can be hard on you and it can be hard on the people around you when you don't lead in the way that's most authentic to your own style, to your strengths, 
uh, to the environment that you're in and all the things that are happening in your life at that given time, which may be different than the person who you are modeling. So I, I think about those two things, Tejo, and I think it's applicable beyond finance as well. Um, but I've noticed when I'm um, when people are struggling with my leadership, it's often because I'm not being principled. And I have to go back and say, and, and think about why it is that they're, um, that they're challenging me or what it is that isn't resonating about how I'm communicating. And often when I unpack it, I can realize that it's that I'm not uh, being principled in my approach or, or I've betrayed a principle or we haven't thought enough about our principle. Our principle should have changed or I'm just not being predictable because it doesn't ladder up to a principle. Got it. That's great. And uh, also let me ask you about, as you started taking on these operating rooms, obviously I don't want to get you in trouble with uh, uh, Twitter. You've made no mistakes as Twitter CFO, <laughs> for sure. But if you look back at earlier roles, what are some lessons learned? What are some screw-ups and mistakes that you've made early in your operating uh, CFO uh, journey that, that if you were to go back seven, eight years when you were taking on these operating roles and you were to give yourself some advice, what would that be? How, is there anything you would have done differently? There are so many things I would have done differently. And there certainly are, are a number that have happened at Twitter as well. Uh, I... I um, the first that comes to mind is, is what we were just talking about, which is uh, there were many times at Intuit when somebody would come to the finance team looking for a decision. And in fact, it happened early on at Twitter as well. We were once looking at an acquisition and the product lead said, well, it's up to Ned because it's M&A and the corp dev team is part of the finance team. And Jack and I both looked at the leader and said, no, it's not my Jack was like, it's not Ned's decision. If we're going to buy this company and it's going to report to you, 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 this person, you have to own it. And Ned should have an opinion. He should help inform our opinions. You should help us execute it. If we choose to do it, we ended up not doing this one, um, but he shouldn't be deciding on our behalf just because there's a dollar sign. And I think earlier in my time as a finance leader at a company, I thought that every decision that had a dollar sign I had to make a decision about, I had to approve somebody else's decision. And it was a big unlock for me and for the people around me um, to be really clear where I felt I needed to help, where I thought I'd like it if they asked for my help and where we could rely on somebody's good judgment or some principle or policy instead. And that was a big unlock for me. It allowed me to spend time on other things instead of just making decisions or debating who ought to make a decision. And I think it was a big unlock for other people around me too, when they started to know what they could expect of me, because um, I, I learned that I was being a blocker. Got it. Got it. And so before we move on from this uh, area of career path, maybe the last question I'll ask you in, in, in this uh, kind of uh, section is, you know, the future, right? Of course, feel free to say, uh, I don't know is a valid uh, answer. I haven't thought about it as a valid, totally valid answer, but you are already at kind of, you know, the, the, pinnacle, the pinnacle of impactful CFO uh, roles in, in a you know, very well-known company. How do you get up in the morning and motivate yourself? What, what is the, that next challenge that keeps you going? And, and how do you think about, uh, uh, you know, the future? One of the neat things about Twitter is that our company, the things that happen on our service the way the world around us is evolving, whether it's policy or decisions that other companies make or the creativity and how people use Twitter coming up with the hashtag, 
um, uh, wanting photos and video, more characters, live audio rooms, these evolutions of how people have conversations in public. Our company and what happens around it is so dynamic that I don't really have to worry much about new challenges. But what I do spend a lot of time worrying about and thinking about is how to evolve my leadership and make sure that it doesn't get stale amidst uh, a, um, a really dynamic environment and an evolving group of people and an evolving group of challenges. Because you can't approach every challenge with the same cookie cutter approach. You can't bring the same style or leadership to a company in your fourth year as you did when you first showed up. So I actually spent a lot of time thinking about how I can show up in meetings and over time and show people that I'm continuing to evolve so that they don't get tired of me. Uh, because what presents to you as the pinnacle presents to me as the bottom of the hill. And I'm trying to climb every day by bringing my best and not, um, not just settling for whatever I did that seemed to work out okay the day before. And we all feel this accountability to each other to continue to evolve, whether it's through 360s that we do, uh, through feedback that we do at Jack staff uh, every quarter uh, for each other, uh, through uh, working with an executive coach, uh, through the feedback I get from my kids or my wife when I botch an interview externally. Uh, I'm constantly trying to improve and evolve. Got it. That's awesome. So let's just focus a little bit to, you know, management and, and mentorship and, and some of those other important aspects of being a, a leader, right? And so let's start with mentors, right? And, and how important were mentors to you and, and, and your success? And how do you think about mentorship? And have you been structured about that in seeking out mentorship? Uh, and I'd love to kind of understand a little bit more about your approach to that self-improvement that obviously you've been working on for a long time, right? I, I'm a big believer in mentorship and I think about it slightly differently. I think we all need our own personal board of directors. We all need the group of people around us who will hold us accountable, who are appropriate for that moment in our career, who know us well enough to give us good advice, who feel accountable to give us good advice, and who rotate on and off the board based on what's happening in your life, what's happening in their lives, whether they can be helpful and have an expertise to bring to bear. And so if I look at my own board of directors, uh, some of the people have uh, lifetime terms. My father, he's given me incredible advice. And there are times when he said, you know, you don't seem happy. Or if you want to do that, you're going to have to learn this first. Or, uh, you know, maybe you need to give it another shot before you give up. At times when other people uh, might have said something, uh, something different. Other people may have rotated on or off. And I've tried to be intentional about making sure that I'm surrounded by people who will hold me accountable, who know me well enough to do so, and are incentivized, whether it's through our friendship or otherwise, to help me in a, a way that will help me uh, bring my best. Mentors are, it has to be a two-way street. The mentee and the mentor both need to be motivated to make that relationship work. And so it, it really can't be just cold calling somebody and saying that you would benefit from their mentorship because you'd probably benefit more from the mentorship of somebody who knows you well enough, even if they um, may not have a certain job or had a certain experience 
um, if they know you well, they often can provide a lot of uh, a, a lot of benefit to you. And so, being intentional about it is super important. Uh, I wouldn't count on one person. I'd count on a, a, a balance of people, and I'd make sure that you continue to rotate that group to keep it fresh. Got it. And also, you know, so much of your job right now is you know, is building teams. It's leading people. It's attracting the best of the best to come join your mission at Twitter, and and that leadership management did that come naturally to you or you know and, and, and were you always like you know a leader or is that something you had to work at what are the learning curve uh they're like because um you know this is something i've heard up and coming finance leader talk about uh in the past where uh if they don't have that right and if they if they're not kind of born leaders does that mean that they're never going to get that shot in the long term and what's your experience been on that one well, I would challenge somebody who says they weren't a born leader to remember that there's so many different styles of leadership. And although I may be an extrovert and I may lead by example and I might talk a lot and I might uh, share stories in order to inspire people and I may give very direct feedback, somebody else may have a very effective but completely different approach to leadership. And so I would encourage people to not think about whether they are or aren't born leaders. I've always been interested in leadership. I've always gravitated to roles that allowed me to help other people do great work and to inspire them and to build teams and to help people do their best work in that moment at that company on that team. Uh, but I've had to constantly learn and evolve my approach because there certainly have been times when I found that the person wasn't listening or wasn't responding. And at first it may have been easy to say, well, that's their fault, they're not listening to me. But one really has to stop and challenge themselves in that moment that it may be the way that you're leading that is preventing them from delivering their best. And that shift in mindset has helped me a lot recently in remembering that if, if somebody isn't responding, it may very well and in fact probably is me who can do better, not them. I need to find a different way to communicate with them. I need to find a different way to inspire them. I may not understand well what it is that inspires them or what their goals are. And understanding that helps somebody be much more effective. And I love constantly challenging myself to get better at these things because we all have work to do, regardless of what our title or our role or our scope or how many people on our team uh, there are. But I, I, I definitely gravitated to these roles since childhood. Got it. That's awesome. So I, I guess you think focus a little bit on the role of, of uh, finance teams, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes finance teams can get kind of pigeonholed into this, you know, back office role and, and uh, things like that, right? And as a CFO, uh, you know, how do you think about earning that seat at the table and being a partner to the business? And um, what are your lessons learned in terms of, uh, you know, making sure that finance gets its uh, you know, position uh, to influence the outcome of the business, right? Well, that's the term that we use inside of Twitter on our finance team. We talk about influencing the outcome mm -hmm. and whether somebody's in accounting or BD, which is part of our finance team or sales finance, building the revenue forecast, we want them to have their own opinion and to bring the data to help somebody else come up with their opinion. And it's really important to do both of them in an objective way, because if you allow your opinion to prevent you from helping somebody come up with a, their own opinion, 
then they'll stop asking you questions and they'll just want you to throw the data over the wall so that they can interpret it. And we're all really good at building spreadsheets. I may not be as good at it as many of you, um, but uh, we're, we've, we've failed when people aren't asking us questions when we're not able to provide insights. It's interesting, when I first got to Twitter, because of the tenure of the finance team at the time relative to some of the other leaders of the company and because of some of the challenges that we've been through, I'd say finance probably had too strong of a hand in a lot of things. And so our work when I first got to the company was to be really clear that we're not going to make all the decisions that have a dollar sign associated with them, that we're not going to say yes or no to the, the headcount. We're going to help people come up with a budget and we're going to help them fit as many things and the highest ROI things possible into that budget. And we're going to help them hold themselves and others accountable for how those dollars are spent and the outcomes that they deliver. And sometimes it takes longer to build those relationships where you can do that. They definitely can't all be done by one human being. And my job as CFO is not to have a trusted relationship with everybody who needs finance support at Twitter. My job is to make sure they're getting everything that they need and perhaps more from the finance team and that finance professionals have the tools and the skills in order to go deliver on influencing outcomes, having your own opinion and helping other people come up with, with theirs. And so that, that's the approach that we try to take. There definitely are times when we're better at it than others, um, but that, that's what we're working towards. Got it. And quick question on, on um, you know, in many public roles like this, we've also seen instances of, uh, you know, the controversial practices uh, in businesses and failed IPOs. And, you know, maybe that happens in Silicon Valley. It ha it's happened in the recent past more often than it should uh, in, in, in terms of ethical practices and all of that kind of stuff, right? And how, how do you think about the role and responsibility of the CFO in terms of maybe setting the tone, uh, you know, when it comes to ethical business practices? And, and uh, you know, especially when you might have to work with very influential, strong-willed uh, founders, uh, which a lot of finance leaders uh, might ultimately end up uh, having to uh, kind of work in that mode. What are your kind of uh, lessons learned in terms of what tone you set uh, for the business? Because in a lot of cases, boards look to the CFO. The CFO is seen as the adult in the room and, and the person who is the keeper of, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, I guess, reputation uh, of the company as a whole and things like that, right? So how do you approach uh, that? Well, first of all, you can't do this single-handedly. And so if you're not aligned on the principles and where the line is in terms of integrity with the board and with the rest of the management team, it's really hard to drive change around something like this. And so those are things that one needs to understand through all the inputs you can get before you accept a role as opposed to after you do. Uh, second is once you know you're clear on those things, it's a lot easier to set the tone. Especially at a founder-led company, it's not to say that it can't be true at a non-founder-led company, uh, Intuit had a very strong founder presence, although Scott wasn't in a, and still isn't in a CEO role anymore, but he had an office in the building with the management team and had a strong presence. RPX was founder-led and obviously Twitter is as well. And founders have this incredible license to drive change and to set tone and culture in a way that I really enjoy. And I've been very intentional about working at these companies that have had strong founder presences. Um, that makes my job a lot easier because when I say that's not how we do it here, I'm not just speaking for myself. 
Uh, I'm privileged to work at a company where there's a very strong moral compass that existed long before I arrived at Twitter. And so my job is to help maintain it and to communicate it um, to people who are new to the company or to our partners and to make sure we do it at every altitude um, as opposed to, to create it, which I think would be a much harder job. Got it. That's great. So I'm going to ask one more question, uh, uh, you know, before I kind of jump to audience questions, and which is I, I always like to ask people who are at kind of the cutting edge of these leadership roles about the future, right? And and what they see coming, because a lot of the people in the audience are up for CFO roles, say in the next five years, ten years. If you look back at at your career uh, in terms of how that finance role has evolved and the leadership role has evolved, and you look at the future, there's so much happening now. Like direct listings were a thing, now SPACs are a thing, and there's all this innovation happening, you know, the finance leaders have to maybe stay in touch with. Uh, so if you try to look around the corner a little bit over the next five years, 10 years, what would your advice be to the people who are up for those leadership roles in terms of what they should be focusing on and, and skills they should be building now? Well, I hope that our jobs as AI and ML make the data easier and easier to consume, that our jobs are less and less. If you think back to 50 years ago, inputting data was a very big part of any finance team's job. And it may be that 10 years from now that inputting data is zero of our job. We're accountable for it because we may own the software that does it, but we're not doing it. And if we're not inputting data, we better have pretty good insights that fall out of that data Otherwise, there isn't gonna be much left for us to do. The good news is there's endless opportunity through insights to provide tremendous value to a team and a company in helping have your own point of view and helping other people come up with their own point of view. So I suspect we'll be more and more insight focused and less and less input focused if you think about the evolution over decades. Now, one misnomer that I often hear people talk about how this is the day of the strategic CFO as opposed to the whatever the opposite is. And I kind of think the opposite is an operational CFO. And so I bristle at the concept of a strategic CFO because uh, I wouldn't want that to mean that what somebody's really saying is they're not very good at the operating components of the role, but they're really thoughtful. Because I think we all want to be really thoughtful and really good at the operational components of, of a role, as well as the, the leadership that a, a certain job might require. One might spike in their interests or their capabilities on one area or another, but I would caution all of us from being tagged too much as an operational CFO, really good at inputs, or a strategic CFO, really good at insights, and to be really disciplined about making sure that the organization you lead is really good at both of those things. That's fantastic. So I wanna jump into audience questions now, before I do that, uh, a 10 second kind of update to uh, the people who are attending. Uh, in case you're not familiar with Airbase, what we do is that we're a spend management platform and uh, we bring together every non-payroll dollar that a company spends into a single platform, right? So typically companies have a corporate card and bill payments and, and expense reimbursements. Everything lives in a separate system. It's painful. Uh, we think the future is where all of that lives in, in one uh, system. So if you want to learn more about that, Laura's going to put up a quick question. Uh, please tell us yes or no, and, and we're happy to reach out to you. All right. So I'll, I'll uh, set that aside and jump into audience questions now. 
Khaled has a has a good question. Uh, you know, Ned, how do you balance the trade-off between bold, you know, moonshot investments, and at the same time, you're a public company. You have kind of promises to keep and and guidance that you've provided and things like that. And how do you maybe individually, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but as maybe as a leadership team, think about the balance between the two, right? So part of our job as finance leaders at a public company is to help create the space externally for the company to do the work that it believes it needs to do. And so uh, if you provide too much information externally, if you uh, pigeonhole the company in terms of what the art of the possible is by the guidance you provide, the data you provide, by getting people focused on a metric that they think is interesting or helpful, but actually isn't what you're driving towards internally, uh, you can make it really hard to invest over the right time frame for the company, and you can be solving for near-term metrics. And so I would start there when thinking about how to create space. It's the CFO's job, along with the CEO to um, help think through and make sure that you're making the decisions across the company that allow you to then go out and create the space in order to execute on those plans. And then when an investor, whether it's a private investor or a, a public market investor says, well, how come you don't give X or how come your margins won't be Y? You can tell them the reason is we're trying to create the space for us to invest over a longer period of time. And we don't want that to prevent us from being able to make good investment decisions. As an example, you know, we have 2023 targets that we put out for revenue and audience, but we did not put a margin target out. We said what we thought we could accomplish over time, but we wouldn't put a time frame on it because we didn't want that to prevent us from realizing growth, not just through 2023, but beyond. All right. And here's another, you know, Good question. You're clearly in a very demanding role, right? And but how do you balance devoting? Jake has asked this question: time, heart, devotion necessary to be an awesome CFO of a large, influential company, and at the same time, you know, balance uh, family time and, and the work-life balance uh, challenge in general, right? Like, how do you approach that? It's hard. I'm sure, like all of you, uh, balancing your own well-being with a job that we may love, but it can be demanding, can be all consuming. And even when you're not doing it, you may be thinking about it with the rest of our lives. And in my case, that's our three kids and my wife of 20 years and, and our extended families. And uh, it's a constant challenge for me. And I'm always seeking hacks that will help me do it. People laugh, but I still, I'm using a backpack even during COVID. I don't, really carry it anywhere, but I zip things up in the backpack at the end of the day. And it just creates one more component of friction for me to log back in or get back into something. Um, I try really hard to be more rigid about my schedule now and leaving certain times open so that I can be available to the family because when you're working in the same place where you live, uh, there's a lot less of an excuse to not participate in a call or do something. And so it's a, it's a constant challenge for me, uh, but one that um, I'm constantly looking for hacks for that might be different for me than they'd be for any of you. My inbox, you know, I usually don't have more than 20 emails in my inbox. I sleep a lot better when there isn't a lot sitting there waiting for me, but it does take a lot of work to trim it back. 
them net you're a good man i think i might have a couple of thousand emails in my inbox that i uh, bankruptcy is looming so uh you know maddie has another uh, uh, great question that's because you have a finance team that reads all their emails teja <laughs> probably probably right and so here's maddie's question that's about as you tend to go into more uh, leadership uh, uh, roles right and you're, you're you know kind of moving away from the daily operations and the ground floor how do you balance owning the data reporting being close to the important numbers versus just trusting others in your team to just right. you know, own that right and how, how do you find that balance that's a great question so one uh, i work at a company where we largely have one product we we have we sell ads that that for people that go on other companies apps and we sell access to our APIs, but 85% of our business is selling ads on Twitter. And so I'm able to focus my time on these small handful of revenue lines. And there's one meeting we have a week where the weekly business review, where I'm able to get close to the data with the leaders who are responsible for delivering those outcomes. For me, it's the weekly business review. For others of you, it might be a different how but I'd be really clear, this is the place where I'm gonna get my information that's gonna help me stay close. I'd also be really clear, this is how deep you're gonna see me dive. And if you see me dive deeper, I challenge you to ask me why, because it's either I'm really concerned that this thing is a canary in a coal mine, or I've gone too deep and I need your help coming back out. I ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I don't provide context as to why I'm asking the question. I challenge people to ask me why I'm asking if I don't explain, because sometimes it's genuine curiosity and it's the wrong meeting. We have to make a decision. If you want to learn about that, let's set up another time. Sometimes it's, I'm worried this is a canary in the coal mine. So I'm, I'm going to be a dog on a bone about this until I learn more. Or it could be, I want to learn more about this so I can understand your process and how you got to your decision, because that'll allow me to ask fewer questions in the future. And that helps a lot when I explain it, which sometimes I forget to do until somebody asks me. Got it. And uh, last question. I know we have uh, two more minutes. When you are hiring, right? And, and, uh, you know, I think you mentioned hiring for potential and, and Jason had a question about this. Like, what are you looking for? How, how do you know a candidate has potential? And I would also imagine at the level you are at, by the time somebody comes to you for an interview, a whole lot of vetting has already happened. And so what specifically are you trying to look for? I'm assuming you're not looking for specific skills. Can this person do X, Y, Z, uh, individual contributor job? But, but what, are, what are you looking for uh, when you are interviewing candidates? Two things come to mind. I'm really interested in people who are passionate about the things that they've done. They don't have to have done the exact job, but to know that they've, been, they've done things, they've sought and succeeded at things that they were passionate about means that they may have learned something about themselves, which will allow them, which have caused interest in that role that we're talking about. And that would allow them to really thrive in that role. And so I really like, I love hearing them talk about experiences and they may do it in an introverted way. They may do it in a different volume than I might, but to feel their passion in some form for work that they've done. It could be a project, it could be a whole job, it, um, but that, that's one. And the second is I wanna make sure that at Twitter, we hire from a really diverse background. And that means how people think, where they're from, uh, gender and ethnic diversity. And so I'm always looking to understand how somebody will make us better by bringing a diverse perspective of one form or another 
um, that will help us be better, that will help us better reflect our service, that will help us uh, make better decisions, that will give us empathy for different people and different challenges. Because if we just hire people who are extroverted, or we just hire people who have worked in operating roles in finance, or we just hire people who work 20 hours a day in their previous role, or who are very strong technically, we're going to miss out on so many other things. Got it. That's great. I'm sorry, there's so many more questions that I can't get to. I'm going to end with one that will take five seconds and, and we'll end with a fun one. In your copious free time, uh, Ned, what, what's, what, what do you do for fun? Is there a book or a TV show or a movie you've seen uh, recently that you can recommend? Uh, my favorite movie ever is Hoosiers. My wife and I are watching Schitt's Creek when the kids go to bed. And uh, free time is usually either exercising or doing something with our small family with the, the five folks in our family because uh, during the, the pandemic that's that's been the crew and I'm, I'm blessed to be surrounded by a group of people in our family who puts up with me and who I really love so I, I feel grateful to have them around me and that I get to have dinner with them every night. That's fantastic Ned thank you so much for taking this time out I can't even imagine what your calendar looks like really appreciate it I, I learned a lot I'm sure all the folks who joined us did and uh uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks, Tejo. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody.